Thank you, Stephanie. I'm Victoria, alcoholic. It's good to be here with you all. It's my first time sharing my story on a Zoom meeting. Um, so I'll just get right into my history. I grew up in a violent, alcoholic home with a very repressive uh, framework underneath of religion. Uh, very strict Catholic. My father had actually studied to be a priest um, for a couple of years in a seminary. And um, I come from a family of clerics, nuns, priests, brothers. And I realized at a pretty young age that I, I thought I, I must be a really bad person. I didn't understand why. I was overwhelmed by life. And my first form of escape was just hiding physically, you know, disappearing into places so that people couldn't find me around our home. And my second form of escape, which I adopted in about third grade, was reading. And um, I was the oldest of six, and we were uh, well-behaved and dressed decently and clean. And so we didn't really attract the attention of anyone on the outside, even though there was a tremendous amount of abuse of abuse going on. And uh, to be completely honest, I became a coward at a young age. I decided on that as a strategy that I was going to say as little as possible and pretend and say whatever would get me out of trouble. And so I began um, lying um, and rationalizing it um, pretty young. And then when I was 15, I ended up taking my first drink. I had moved um, in with my grandparents, um, primarily because my father um, was becoming more and more violent over time. And I believe that is related to the progression of the disease of alcoholism. And, um, and I blacked out, passed out lied to my grandmother later about not having been drinking and had no idea why. And I was um, a, a really good student and I didn't want to mess up my chances to go to a good college. So I didn't drink for about an entire year. And then in 11th grade, the same friend who'd invited me out the first time, who was so upset, you know, that I couldn't hold my liquor. She invited me out again. And I did the same thing. I drank too much. I blacked out, passed out, <laughs> vomited, tried to clean it up. And I really was completely baffled. I had no idea. I just looked at myself as a screw up. And um, after that, I kind of gave up. I got uh, pregnant at 17 because I was drunk. I had a son at a young age. Meanwhile, um, and it, it can be hard to talk about this, but I'll just say I had four younger brothers and two of them disappeared after a violent incident between them that was instigated by another family member. One of them threatened to kill the other if, you know, if he didn't leave and if he ever came back and he left never to return. And then I think the second one realized that he was dangerous to um, the welfare of the rest of the family. And I think that he disappeared to save us. And then the next brother um, came down with a severe mental illness. 
lots of drinking, you know, among all of us. And he uh, burned our house down and then was incarcerated in a mental hospital and has been incarcerated numerous times. And he has no life at all. He's just uh, a real shell of a person, far more than what I would say an alcoholic who only struggles with alcoholism could be. And then um, my fourth brother was in the house when it burned down and he did escape with his life, but he walked away from our family never to return. And these were the kinds of things that I didn't know how to talk about. I didn't know how to face. I didn't know how to deal with. And as the oldest sister, you know, what I did is I just drank more, you know, to keep the pain down. Um, Not really understanding anything about life. And um, so, you know, I screwed up a lot at work. I, uh, in fact, by the time I came into the program, I only had two hours of sick leave left. And that was probably after four years of working the same job. Um, So I had really abused my sick leave just because of the hangovers and not being able to make it in. And, And then coming in, like trying to make it in a half a day and thinking that people wouldn't notice and realize um, that something was, you know, really wrong. And um, I also had a a roadblock escape plan because I lived in the mountains outside Santa Fe. And there was um, a, a road on the outskirts that went through the mountains And there were some heavy dips. And so it was a great place for police to set up a roadblock because you wouldn't know that it was there until you came upon it. And my plan was that once I realized the roadblock was there is to turn off my lights because, of course, they had uh, motorcycle cops at the at either side of the roadblock ready to chase off you know, to to chase down people like me trying to get away. And so I would just turn off my lights so they couldn't see me and drive in the dark, <laughs> you know, miss cars. And I didn't realize until after I came into the program that really, you know, people who don't drink to excess don't have roadblock plans. You know, it's it's alcoholics who have roadblock escape plans. So, um, and and I never actually had to use that. Every time I passed through a roadblock, I happened to be sober, but it was really just a coincidence. So I just escaped kind of with the skin of my teeth. And then I worked at a place where we were told that if any of us were caught um, um, basically and arrested for DWI, that we would be fired immediately, no questions asked, because uh, the elected official we worked for was the author of the DWI reform bills in um, New Mexico. And so, you know, I was, I was really trying to be on my best behavior, but um, really struggling. And I feel um, very fortunate that I actually came in to the program without getting in trouble with the law. I went to a counselor and for the first time I told her about some drinking issues. I had never told her before because again, I just considered myself a screw up and I just thought drinking made things slightly worse, but I didn't realize what was really going on. And And she um, encouraged me to try the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and um, going to traditional AA is, is a big part of my story. So I will share about that. And I was so upset 
that she had suggested that I was an alcoholic. I was really outraged and filled with self-righteousness. And I um, pulled myself together with all the dignity that someone with a terrible hangover could muster. And I stalked out of there and she held the door open for me and I could tell she was afraid of me. And that made me more contemptuous of her instead of making me realize what is the matter with me? How am I acting that she would be afraid of me? And then that weekend, I got drunk on um, mixing drinks. I had stuck to beer for a long time because things went really badly when I drank hard liquor. And and this time I just, um, you know, I mixed some beer and uh, scotch and woke up in a strange place, didn't know where I was, didn't didn't know how I'd gotten there, was really scared to death. And um, and I had never canceled that counseling appointment with my counselor. And so I went back the following Monday and I told her, you must be right. I must be an alcoholic. I'll do whatever you tell me. And she could have told me anything. And I would have done it. Unfortunately, she was aware of the program, not because she was an alcoholic, but just, um, the, you know, those committees that reach out to the professional community she had been reached out to and she sent me to a meeting and someone met me there and gave me my first big book and I listened and I was horrified at all the things they said not that they had not that they had done them but that they were actually admitting to it I thought that that was really inappropriate and um but I went and I started reading and I got to the point of the book that said why don't you choose a god of your own understanding and all, and I just closed the book and I thought, well, what is the God of my understanding? And at that time, I was very much, um, well, I'll just say a, a believer, not Catholic, but um, a believer. And um, and I just thought, it's a God who hates me. And if you had asked me before then, like, does the God you believe in hate you? I would have said no. But somehow everything came together. And then I thought, and well, and how did I get that kind of a God? And I thought, that's the God of my parents. And then I, and then I just thought, well, if I could choose a God of my own understanding, what would that look like? And I thought God would forgive all those people in that meeting for all the things that they said they had done that had hurt other people. And then I thought, and if God would forgive them. Why wouldn't God forgive me? And I know this is a secular meeting, so I'm not going to talk more about God. I'm just telling you that was the first night of my first meeting. That was my first realization um, of my own spiritual beliefs. And it was the beginning um, of what for me um, was a spiritual awakening that um, has continued to this day. And so I'll just say that some of the gifts I've I've gotten in recovery is, you know, it was the first place I felt like I really belonged, as I have heard many times from other people in the meeting. And I just thought, wow, you know, like, I'm not the only one who thinks I'm going crazy, like these other people do, too. And and it was the first place I learned the language of emotions. I remember my sponsor saying, Something like, how do you feel about blah, blah, blah? And then I responded and she listened to me very patiently and respectfully without interruption. And when I finished, she said, I asked you how you felt and you told me what you thought. How do you feel about it? 
And I remember being completely stumped. I had no idea how I felt because I was the kind of person who always acted out of her emotions, who tried to repress them through alcohol when they were inappropriate, when they felt inappropriate to me, or when I felt like I was going to get out of control with other people. So I drink myself so I could be cheerful, at least for a few hours. And she came back and she brought this page and it had like all these little precursors to emojis um, with names under them, like irritated, sad, angry, enraged, happy, content, peaceful. And you know what? It was a real revelation to me. And I am still learning to talk the language of emotions. But, um, you know, that was a real gift because I was operating at the function of them without even realizing it, like I could be enraged. And what I would do is I, I wouldn't say to myself, oh, I'm really angry. Why? You know, what is that about? What is my part? I would just I would just be enraged or angry and I would make someone pay for it. You know, and I didn't care how loud I had to yell as long as I wasn't going to get in trouble. You know, I didn't care if I had to push people around. I was going to do whatever it took to make things right. And the way I decided that I could make things right was so that I could feel better. And in the program, you know, I gained the ability to tell the truth, you know, from listening to other people share their thoughts and their feelings in the meetings. And then I would, I would say, oh, do I relate to that? You know, or have I done that? Yeah, you know, and it would just really, really help me. And also, I developed courage. And for me, that's a never ending journey too. you know, because before I always ran away from things that were too hard, I didn't even want to try anything in sports unless I was already good at it. You know, I didn't want to try bowling because I just couldn't seem to make it hit a good number of pins. I I wasn't the kind of person who was just really easygoing and, you know, would try new things. It's like, no, I had to be really good at it because my feelings of insecurity would raise their ugly head otherwise. And then that would make me feel bad. And then, of course, I would lash out again or I would drink. You know, those were really my two main ways of coping with negative feelings. And the first time I had to really demonstrate some courage was to go to my first meeting. Um, and of course, that was out of desperation. And I crawled in with my tail between my legs. But I would say the second time that really demanded any level of courage from me was um, when I had to do my fifth step. You know, um, it was a little bit hard to do my fourth step, but you know, everyone kept saying, if you do a really good fourth and fifth, you'll never have to take a drink again. And I really wanted to be in that position. But when I met with my sponsor to do the fifth step, I actually thought that she might throw me out of the program when she discovered what a despicable person I was. And so, you know, in doing that, when I was so afraid to do it, I actually developed you know, some courage that I had never had. And, and that's what I've learned a lot from the program is, you know, it really is, uh, recovery is a program of action. And if I'm not willing to take the action, I'm not really going to get, you know, very good results. And I'm not going to be that big of a person. And I really want to be so much of a bigger and a better person, you know, than I ever was in life. 
And also another gift is compassion. Um, you know, on the compassion I've developed, I think I still have a really long way to go. I, cause I have a lot of judgmentalism, but the compassion that uh, the program has given me has chipped away slowly, but surely at my judgmentalism. And that's really great. And one of the things I really appreciate hearing about is the yes, you know, is like, don't judge others, you know, just because they've done something you haven't done, that might be waiting for you right around the corner. And this disease is a progressive disease. And, you know, certainly it was for me. And so I really love thinking about the yets because I remember in the beginning, I was like, God, I would never do that or, you know, really look down on people um, for different things. And and then it took a while, but it, it finally occurred to me, it's like, well, a lot of them would never do a lot of the things I've done. You know, like I was an abominable mother and my son got taken away from me twice and there's many alcoholic parents who've never had their children taken away from them. And, you know, I don't want to be judged um, because how have I grown in the program, you know, from the unconditional love that's been given to me, you know, from being accepted and appreciated for who I was and who I was trying to be instead of for what I had done or what I had failed to do. And then also um, recovery, uh, in the traditional program gave me a sense of purpose and my sponsor really drummed it into my head that, you know, I could wake up in the middle of the night, not be able to go to sleep, you know, and that there might be people I could help. And um, that was the time to think of them and then to get moving on it, you know, in the morning. And I really do believe, I, I wish I had a more definitive sense of purpose. I think music is probably the greatest contribution I have to offer the world and I haven't really done a lot with it, but I think uh, apart from that is um, I have a sense of purpose because I really do wake up with a sense like, who can I help, you know, today and only because it was drummed into my head from my sponsor. And then, um, you know, just that sense of unconditional love. I, I don't think I ever carried much love in my heart including for my son, sad to say, not because it was a conscious decision not to. I think I just came from such a, a warped background that I didn't really know how to love. And I learned how to love because of all the love that my sponsors and everyone else at the meetings, you know, people I met in recovery that they gave me. And, and I really do believe in that saying, you can't give away what you don't have. And I didn't have any love you know, for so many years. And um, so now I do. Um, it's too late for most people in my family, but it's not too late for other people. And I think about how I've been helped by people who weren't in my, you know, immediate or extended, or let's just say my biological family and how much they've given me. And so it's like, well, the least I can do is reach out and give, you know, to others, not just people in recovery, but everywhere, everywhere around me. And then the focus on service, you know, I used to think, well, I should be a, at a certain level, uh, you know, able to perform at a certain level to be able to serve. And I should really want to, and I don't feel like it. And I feel anxious. And my sponsor told me, you can't think your way into right acting. You must act your way into right thinking. And so like to get out there 
and to reach out to the newcomers, you know, regardless of how I felt. And I remember the first meeting I did that after she told me that. And because she told me to reach out to at least three female newcomers if they were at a meeting. And um, and coincidentally, three female newcomers introduced themselves at the next meeting. And I wasn't feeling very good. I was depressed. I probably had about 90 days of sobriety. And I just thought, well, she asked me to do this. And, you know, am I willing to go to any length or not? And so I just thought, okay. I'll go ahead and do it. And I walked over to this person who had introduced herself as a newcomer. And I can tell you, and I decided, you know, that I needed to plaster a smile on my face because I wanted to be a good representation of recovery. And I, I just tapped her on the shoulder and she turned around and I greeted her. And I can tell you the smile that broke out over her face was incredible. It was shocking. And if my sponsor hadn't asked me to do that, I never would have, you know, even thought of that. And so that was really an amazing revelation for me. And then the last thing I can remember that I've gotten from traditional AA was this whole idea of self-care. Because I was the kind of person who I, you know, I ate what I wanted when I felt like it, you know, when I had the money. and. I didn't really think about my health. I wasn't very disciplined. And then what my sponsor started asking me was, are you eating? Or I'd be really depressed. And she would say, have you eaten today? I mean, she'd also ask me, have you called another alcoholic? But that whole thing about eating and exercise and sleeping, it was just stuff I had never really paid attention to. And I the and the more sober I am, the more I realize how important they are. And then I came into secular recovery about a year and a half ago. And um, the gifts I've gotten from secular recovery are um, really amazing, too. It's, it's I've learned um, to be able to express myself like in a what a broader way. Um, I think there's greater expressiveness. At the secular meetings, um, I have a greater sense of freedom about whether it's okay to talk about something, if it's important to me, and I believe it relates to my recovery. Um, it's I think that I've acquired the increasing ability to be true to myself because I was repressed with um, the religious orientation in the traditional meetings. Um, and the interesting thing is I had sponsored someone who was an atheist. I had sponsored someone who was Jewish, who told me the first time she ever um, heard the Our Father was in an AA meeting and um, that it was not part of her, you know, religious tradition. And she felt very uncomfortable with it. I also had invited a Buddhist to a meeting. And needless to say, like all of those didn't go very well. And I truly did not have the wherewithal to to deal with it very effectively because I didn't really understand and I didn't know anything about secular meetings and, um, and all of them fell away and I'm, I'm sorry about that. And I also have some friends who took their lives um, stone cold sober with many years of sobriety. And I wonder if they felt as repressed as I did and if that contributed you know, to their sense of hopelessness. And both of them were very much into service. Both of them had sponsors. 
Um, one of them was actively working with his sponsor. The other one was trying to, but his sponsor thought that because he had so many years of sobriety, 17, his sponsor actually told me this later at the funeral, um, that he just really wasn't available to him. And they both ended up taking their own lives, which um, affected me deeply. And I think about it a lot, about who really does, you know, get sober and and reap, you know, the benefits of, of the joy and the sense of peace, you know, that we talk about in the program. Another gift of secular sobriety I, I have is a greater sense of authenticity because of hearing other people express themselves and, and not be repressed and, you know, which inspires me to express myself in different ways than I was accustomed to at the traditional meetings. And then I really love being exposed to a wider variety of ideas um, because people come in to the secular meetings with all kinds of ideas and, and, and maybe biases, but, you know, I come in with the traditional AA bias, you know, generally. And so I think that it's very um, stimulating to my ability to think and act um, from hearing other people talk uh, about different, different approaches and so it, I think it's helped make me more creative in my approach to sobriety. So I feel um, very fortunate to be uh, sober, um, to have gotten sober the way I did, because I do think AA through the steps, it's, it's a really a rigorous program. And I'm not quite sure if I would be sober, if I had still be sober. I have 26 years of sobriety. I don't know how that would have gone if I had just come into secular um, because I really need that background of the, of the steps and the real emphasis on service. You know, it was, it was deeply ingrained in me. And I think that it's made me uh, a really different person um, for the better. And so I'm happy to be sober today and with all of you. Thank you.